0: Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for standing by. Good morning. My name is Alan, and I will be your conference moderator today. At this time, I would like to welcome everyone to the & Company Q2 Sales and Earnings Conference Call. All participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session. If you wish to ask a question, please press 1, then 0 on your telephone keypad. You may withdraw your question at any time by repeating the one-then-zero command. If you are using a speakerphone, please pick up the handset before pressing the numbers. If you should require assistance during the call, press star-then-zero. As a reminder, this conference is being recorded. Thank you. I would now like to turn the conference over to Peter Dannenbaum, VP Investor Relations. Please go ahead.
1: Welcome to Merck's second quarter 2022 conference call. Speaking on today's call will be Rob Davis, President and Chief Executive Officer, Caroline Litchfield, Chief Financial Officer, and Dr. Dean Lee, President of Merck Research Labs. Before we get started, I'd like to point out a few items. You will see that we have items in our GAAP results, such as acquisition-related charges, restructuring costs, and certain other items. You should note that we have excluded these from our non-GAAP results and provide a reconciliation in our press release. I would like to remind you that some of the statements that we make today may be considered forward-looking statements within the meaning of the safe harbor provision of the U.S. Private Securities Litigation Reform Act of 1995. Such statements are made based on the current beliefs of MERS management and are subject to significant risks and uncertainties. If our underlying assumptions prove inaccurate or uncertainties materialize, actual results may differ materially from those set forth in the forward-looking statements. Our SEC filings, including Item 1A and the 2021 10K, identify certain risk factors and cautionary statements that could cause the company's actual results to differ materially from those projected in any of our forward-looking statements made this morning. Merck undertakes no obligation to publicly update any forward-looking statements. During today's call, a slide presentation will accompany our speakers' prepared remarks. The presentation, today's earnings release, as well as our FTC filings are all posted to the Investor Relations section of Merck's website. With that, I'd like to turn the call over to Rob.
2: Thanks, Peter. Good morning and thank you for joining today's call. I'm proud to report that the business continues to perform extremely well. We remain firmly guided by our strategic priorities to drive long-term growth and deliver value to patients and shareholders. We are executing on the opportunities in front of us today while simultaneously making the necessary investments to sustain our success long into the future. I'm pleased to report that during the second quarter, we achieved robust top and bottom line growth and made additional important clinical advancements in our pipeline. Turning first to our results, we again achieved exceptional performance this quarter led by strong growth of key products, including Catruda, Gardasil, and Brideon. Our results were aided by revenue from Legevrio, which is helping in the ongoing fight against COVID-19. We're confident in the underlying demand for our innovative portfolio as we've continued to see momentum in our business, which we are pleased to reflect in our updated guidance. Moving to our research organization, we continue to advance our pipeline most significantly across our suite of pneumococcal conjugate vaccines. Vaxnuvance received an expanded approval from the FDA for pediatric use, providing an important option for children in the prevention of invasive pneumococcal disease. We also presented positive results from clinical studies of B116, our pneumococcal conjugate vaccine candidate designed specifically to address remaining disease burden in adults, and we've initiated pivotal phase three studies. These milestones reinforce the confidence we have in our population-specific approach to address the distinct needs of children and adults. We've also taken additional steps to help you understand the significant opportunities we see in our pipeline. In June, we hosted an investor event at ASCO, which highlighted the depth and breadth of our oncology program. At the event, we reiterated our ambition to become the leading oncology company by 2025 and our goal of sustaining this success well into the next decade. As I reflect on my first year as CEO, I'm very pleased by the significant progress we've made in advancing Merck's position as a global biopharmaceutical leader and the sense of momentum spreading across our business. The unwavering focus and dedication of our employees worldwide is driving strong execution on the significant opportunities in front of us. We're demonstrating impressive resilience across all aspects of our business in a very challenging global environment. We're achieving record levels of production in our manufacturing operations, delivering exceptionally strong revenue growth, making meaningful advances in our pipeline, and taking important steps to be more transparent about our outlook. Our strategy is working, and our future is bright. I was very confident a year ago, and I am even more confident today, that we are well positioned to achieve our near- and long-term goals, anchored by our commitment to deliver important medicines and vaccines to patients and value to all of our stakeholders, including shareholders. With that, I'll turn the call over to Caroline.
3: Thank you, Rob. Good morning. As Rob highlighted, we are maintaining this year's strong momentum with another quarter of exceptional performance in both revenue and earnings. These results further demonstrate. That our focus on science and innovation at the core of our strategy is working. Our success is being enabled by the excellent execution of our dedicated colleagues across the globe and continues to deliver value for patients, customers, and shareholders. Total company revenues were $14.6 billion, an increase of 28%. LaGabria contributed $1.2 billion in revenue. Excluding LaGabria, the business delivered very strong growth of 18%. The remainder of my comments will be on an ex-exchange basis. Our human health business continued its strong momentum with growth of 33% or 21% excluding LaGabria, driven by our key pillars. Our animal health business also delivered solid performance with sales increasing 5%, driven by growth across both our livestock and companion animal products. Now turning to the second quarter performance of our key brands. In oncology, Keytruda grew 30% to $5.3 billion, driven by robust global demand, as well as continued expansion into new indications. And reflects the profound impact it is having on patients across the globe. In the U.S., Keytruda continues to demonstrate momentum in metastatic indications, and is experiencing strong growth from recent launches in earlier stage cancers, including triple negative breast, renal cell carcinoma, and melanoma. Keytruda is now approved for six indications in earlier stage cancers. We are seeing strong utilization and are confident in its continued success as physician and patient experience grows. We have seen a particularly strong uptake in neoadjuvant, adjuvant, high-risk, early-stage triple-negative breast cancer, based on Keynote 522, offering a systemic treatment option to patients in an area of significant unmet need. In the metastatic setting, Keytruda maintains its leadership position in non-small cell lung cancer, capturing 8 out of 10 eligible new patients. Outside the U.S., Keytruda growth was driven by continued uptake in non-small cell lung cancer and the ongoing launches in head and neck cancer and renal cell carcinoma. Initial indicators also point to encouraging trends in the earliest stage indications, including triple negative breast cancer and renal cell carcinoma in key European markets. Lynparza remains the market-leading PARP inhibitor. Our Alliance revenue grew 17%, driven by uptake in certain patients with high-risk, early-stage breast cancer following FDA approval based on the Olympia study. We look forward to potentially expanding upon Limpasa's leadership by reaching additional prostate cancer patients based on the PROPEL study. Lenvima alliance revenue grew 33% due to strong demand following the launches of Keynote 581 in advanced renal cell carcinoma and Keynote 775 in metastatic endometrial cancer. New patient starts across each of these tumours remains strong. Lastly, we continue to be encouraged by the uptake of Welireg, which is tracking in line with expectations. Our vaccines portfolio again delivered excellent growth led by Gardasil, which increased 40% to $1.7 billion. Outside the U.S., Gardasil's significant growth was driven by strong underlying demand, particularly in China, as well as increased supply. In the U.S., sales decreased primarily due to CDC purchasing patterns, although we continue to see some impact from the pandemic on well visits. We continue to invest behind activation campaigns to ensure that parents recognize the importance of routine physician well visits for their children, particularly during the back-to-school season. We remain confident in the growth trajectory of Gardasil, given its proven ability to help prevent certain HPV-related cancers in both females and males. In our hospital acute care portfolio, Bridion sales grew 15%, driven by greater share among neuromuscular blockade reversal agents and an increase in surgical procedures. Our animal health business delivered another solid quarter, with sales increasing 5%. Livestock sales grew 6%, driven by higher demand in ruminants and poultry. Companion animal sales increased 3% due to global demand for the Brevecto line of products. I will now walk you through the remainder of our P&L, and my comments will be on a non-GAAP basis. Growth margin was 74.7%, a decrease of 1.8 percentage points. The decrease was due to the impact of Le higher inventory write-offs and increased manufacturing costs, partially offset by favorable product mix across the remainder of the portfolio and foreign exchange. Operating expenses decreased 19% to $5.2 billion, reflecting charges primarily related to last year's $1.7 billion acquisition of Pandion, which is reflected in our second quarter 2021 R&D expense. Operating expenses excluding these charges increased in line with our plan, driven by investments in our key growth drivers and pipelines. Other expense was approximately $200 million, reflecting higher-than-expected pension settlement expense. Our tax rate was 13.8%. Taken together, we add $1.87 per share. Turning now to our 2022 non-GAAP guidance, the underlying strength of our business enables us to raise and narrow our full-year revenue guidance. We now expect revenue to be between 57.5 and 58.5 billion dollars. Our increased revenue guidance range represents growth of 18 to 20 percent, or 13 to 14 percent excluding LeGabrieux and the impact from foreign exchange. The projected impact from foreign exchange includes an incremental headwind of more than 1% using mid-July rates, resulting in a full-year negative impact of approximately 3%. We are maintaining our growth margin expectation of between 74 and 74.5%. We are increasing our operating expense projection to twenty point five to twenty one point five billion dollars, primarily driven by the two hundred and ninety million dollar upfront payment from the recently announced collaboration with Orion Corporation. As an ongoing practice, our guidance does not include significant potential business development transactions. We increased our expectation of other expense to approximately $500 million, reflecting higher than anticipated pension settlement expense. We continue to assume a full-year tax rate between 135 and 14.5%. We assume 2.54 billion shares outstanding. Taken together, we have narrowed our expected EPS range to $7.25 $7.35. the operational strength in our business would have led to an approximately $0.25 increase in our guidance. This strength is being offset by the upfront payment to Orion, higher pension settlement expense, and an incremental headwind from foreign exchange of more than 1% using mid-July rates. Overall, our guidance reflects our confidence that the strong underlying momentum of our business will continue into the second half of the year. As you consider your models, there are a few things to keep in mind. First, the pandemic was a tailwind to growth in the first half of the year. We expect the benefit to year-over-year growth to lessen over the remainder of the year. Also, we actively manage the impact of foreign exchange through our revenue hedging program. To the extent we see further negative impact from foreign exchange, we will see additional benefit from our hedges in other revenue, as we did in this quarter. Other revenue also includes supply sales to Organon and to Johnson & Johnson for its COVID-19 vaccine, as well as receipts related to out-licensing arrangements. In total, we expect other revenue to be higher in the second half versus the first half of 2022. With respect to our product, for NUMAVAX 23, we continue to expect a negative impact to U.S. sales given the shift towards newer adult pneumococcal conjugate vaccines. On animal health, we are seeing normalized industry growth rates, as we anniversary the favorable trends in pet spending resulting from the pandemic and experience foreign exchange headwinds. However, given our broad and innovative portfolio, we are well-positioned to continue to drive above-market growth in 2022 and beyond. Finally, we continue to expect Le Gavriot full-year sales of $5 to $5.5 billion, with second-half sales weighted to the fourth quarter. Our capital allocation priorities remain unchanged. We will continue to prioritize investments in our pipeline and business to realize the value of the many near- and long-term opportunities in front of us. We continue to pursue compelling external science through strategic business development to augment our internal pipeline. Our recent collaboration with Orion is another example of our execution of this strategy. We remain committed to our dividend, which we expect to increase over time. Finally, to the extent we have excess cash, we will return it to shareholders through share repurchases. To conclude, as we enter the second half of the year, we remain very confident in the strength of our business, driven by global demand for our innovative medicines and vaccines. Our excellent execution will enable us to continue to deliver value to patients and shareholders well into the future. With that, I'd now like to turn the call over to Dean.
4: Thank you, Caroline. It's my pleasure to provide an update on our progress since the first quarter call. We continue to execute on our pipeline strategy, we are advancing the latest science to generate medicines and vaccines that provide clear benefit for patients. Today, I will highlight recent progress in our vaccine pipeline and provide updates on our oncology program as well as LaGeblia. As Rob noted, we have made significant progress across our pneumococcal portfolio. Building upon the approval in the adult indication we received a year ago, Last month, we received FDA approval for our 15-valent pneumococcal conjugate vaccine, VaxNuvance, an important new option to help protect pediatric populations against invasive pneumococcal disease. VaxNuvance is the first pneumococcal conjugate vaccine approved for pediatric populations in almost a decade. VaxNuvance provides comparable immunogenicity for 12 shared serotypes compared to to the currently available 13-valent pneumococcal conjugate vaccine, improved immunogenicity for serotype 3, and expanded coverage for serotypes 22F and 33F. Serotypes 3, 22F, and 33F are key invasive disease-causing serotypes known to be responsible for more than a quarter of all invasive pneumococcal disease in children. Following FDA approval, the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices voted unanimously to endorse use of vaccine as an option for children under 19 years of age. Additionally, the ACIP unanimously voted to include vaccine in the Vaccines for Children program. We await publication of the final CDC recommendations in the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report. Also in June at the International Symposium on Pneumococcal and Pneumococcal Diseases in Toronto, we presented positive results from our phase 1/2 study evaluating V116, our investigational 21-valent pneumococcal conjugate vaccine in pneumococcal vaccine naive adults. V116 is designed to significantly expand coverage compared to currently licensed pneumococcal vaccines by targeting serotypes that account for 85% of all invasive pneumococcal disease cases in adults aged 65 and older in the United States as of 2019. As a strong indicator of our progress, we recently enrolled the first patient into the STRIDE 3 trial evaluating V116 in vaccine-naive adults, the first of four current Phase 3 trials. We have taken a thoughtful and tailored approach to establishing a pipeline of pneumococcal vaccine candidates designed to afford protection by targeting strains posing the greatest risk to specific populations. I look forward to providing additional updates on the progress of our pneumococcal program for the V116 and V117, our investigational candidates specifically targeting pediatric disease. Turning to oncology, we continue to build on the momentum in earlier-stage cancers. We announced that the FDA has accepted our application of CTRUDA for the adjuvant treatment for patients with non-small cell lung cancer following surgical resection based on the results of the ongoing Keynote 091 trial. The FDA has set a Prescription Drug User fee act date of January 29, 2023, However, further data may be provided during the review process that may delay this date. At the American Society for Clinical Oncology meeting in June, we provided expanded analyses and presented data on new endpoints and key subgroups for Keynote 716 for the adjuvant treatment in stage 2B and 2C melanoma, Keynote 522 in neoadjuvant-adjuvant high-risk, early-stage triple-negative breast cancer, and Keynote 564 in adjuvant RCC. We are also delivering on our regulatory strategy outside the United States. Notable actions include four approvals for Katruda from the European Commission based on Keynote 716 for the adjuvant treatment of patients 12 years and older with completely resected stage 2B or 2C melanoma, Keynote 522 in high-risk early-stage triple-negative breast cancer, Keynote 164 and Keynote 158 in MSI high and or mismatched repair-deficient tumors in five different cancer types, and Keynote 826 in certain types of persistent, recurrent, or metastatic cervical cancer. In addition, we received a positive EU CHMP opinion for adjuvant treatment with lymparza for patients with certain types of high-risk, early stage breast cancer based on the phase three Olympia trial. And finally, we are encouraged by the positive readout of Keynote 869 or EV103 in first line urothelial cancer, which is in collaboration with CGIN. Next, I want to discuss our ongoing efforts to treat prostate cancer. Prostate cancer impacts millions of men, and those with advanced disease have low rates of five-year survival. We continue to generate insights about prostate cancer from our ongoing work, and we remain focused on improving patient outcomes. Business development and licensing remains a key element of our strategy to build and maintain a strong and diverse pipeline. Earlier this month, we announced a global development and commercialization agreement with Orion for its investigational oral steroid synthesis inhibitor, ODM two zero eight, which is currently in phase two development for the treatment of metastatic cathode-resistant prostate cancer. ODM two zero eight targets cytochrome P45011A1, a novel approach that is complementary to our broad-based prostate cancer program, which includes the combination of protruder with chemotherapy based on keynote 921. Contruder with anti-androgen therapy based on Keynote 641 and Keynote 991, and Limparza with anti-androgen therapy based on the PROPAL trial. Next, to COVID-19 and LaGabria. The pandemic persists, and SARS-CoV-2 continues to evolve. There is solid emerging evidence for the threat of resistance to antibody therapies from Omicron variants, notably B4 and B5. The rate of transmission and increased hospitalizations with these variants reinforces the need for multiple effective antiviral treatment options, especially for those most vulnerable. For high-risk patients, evidence continues to show that prompt therapeutic intervention improves outcomes. Importantly, a large proportion of high-risk individuals, including older adults, are likely receiving additional medications for chronic conditions. LeGevrio's low propensity for drug-drug interaction avoids the need to adjust existing dosing regimens and monitor liver and kidney functions during treatment, which can facilitate timely intervention for appropriate patients. Recently, data reported from Denmark, Hong Kong, and Poland have provided support for the utility of LeGevrio in real-world settings. We plan to share more data as they become available. To conclude, I am proud of the advancements across our pipeline to date and look forward to providing further updates on our scientific progress in the future. And now, I will turn the call back to Peter.
1: Thank you, Dean. Alan, we're ready for the Q&A session. If you could please assemble the queue.
0: Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. If you wish to ask a question, please press one then zero on your telephone keypad. You may withdraw your question at any time by repeating the one then zero command. If you're using a speakerphone, please pick up the handset before pressing the numbers. Once again, if you have a question, you may press one then zero at this time. One moment please for our first question. Our first question will come from Terrence Flynn with Morgan Stanley, go ahead.
5: Maybe a two part one here. Just wondering if there's a pathway to extend the IP on Katruda via, via either a sub-Q formulation or maybe some other type of formulation patents. And then is there anything from a technical perspective that would prohibit a co-formulation of Katruda with an antibody drug conjugate? Thank you.
4: I guess I will take this. This is Dean. In relationship to uh, different routes of administration, I think you've highlighted that, especially as we go into early stages of cancer, there will be a demand, demand by the patients and the providers to really come up with other formulations besides intravenous formulations where you have to go to an infusion center. So subcutaneous pambalizumab could be very important to serve that need. And the innovation required for subcutaneous uh, is. Is, is viewed you know, through, through the past history, and I would imagine the current uh, situation as novel, uh, useful, and non-obvious. So I think there is a path to think about how to, to think about that innovation. In relationship to cool formulations, in general, cool formulations work well with, for example, when we do IO-IO with pd ones and CTLA-4, TIGIT, or LAG-3. The issue with chemo-based or antibody-drug conjugate-based is I would be a little bit hesitant to do that. Oftentimes they're, they're based on weight-based, and so I think that cool formulations of, of, for example, any IO agent with any chemotherapy or antibody-drug conjugates could be challenged, challenging to, 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 to advance clinically. Thank you, Terrence. Next question, please, Alan.
0: That will be from Evan Segerman with BMO Capital Markets. Go ahead.
5: Thanks for taking my question.
0: So with the widespread news
1: reports of a potential deal with Senators Manchin and Schumer, can you provide us with your thoughts on kind of the structure for Medicare to directly negotiate um, with manufacturers for drug reimbursement and the potential impact on R&D going forward?
2: Yeah, Evan, th- thanks for the question. This is Rob. Um, as, as you said, there is uh, – uh, reports reports really just came out yesterday of a potential deal with uh, Senator Schumer uh, and, and Manchin. And in that is uh, elements of what have been part of the Build Back Better plan related to drug pricing. So, you know, as we look at that, uh, I think it's important to understand first and foremost, we do have significant concern um, on one very important element of the provision, which is, The fact that there is what we see as price setting, it's it's termed negotiation, um, but in effect what it is, it is price setting on drugs after a period of time, uh, and we do believe that will be um, highly chilling on future innovation. Because especially if you think about an area like oncology, um, you know, oncology is an area that the development of the drug continues long after the first approval. If you take Catruda that launched in 2014, between 2014 and 2022, we had something like 30-plus indications uh, approved. We expect to have well more than double that between 2022 and and 2028. And our concern is that if you start to have the the threat of, of, of discounts, mandatory discounts, it could cause companies to question that innovation because you'll have to question whether or not you're going to see the return. So we see a highly chilling effect of that, and it's something that uh, we will continue both as Merck and as the industry to make sure that we uh, communicate our concerns there. And the the only other thing I I might add is, you know, as you think about um, how we think about this to our business going forward, it's important to understand that, as we look at this, while obviously it will have an impact, importantly as we've planned for the future of the business, we have always assumed some form of, of price pressure coming, including in the United States. I think we've communicated that in the past. So as we look at this and you think of a relative to the guidance we've given in the past of expectations for strong growth uh, through our long-range period, that, that continues and includes the assumptions around this. So, you know, while I think we will manage it, I do worry about what it will do to innovation in the industry.
1: Thank you, Evan. Next question, please, Alan.
2: That yeah, will come from Andrew Baum with City.
0: Go ahead.
6: Thank you. A couple of questions. Um, firstly, uh, you've um, announced a couple of licensing from China of ATCs. I think one of them is in late stage development. It's obviously – widely reported that you're in talks with um, CIGIN, which uh, has phase three data from a, a, um, a, another ADC molecule, um, which would compete with and HER2. Um, in general, I'm just interested, uh, Dr. Panzer seems to have closed the doors on seeking approval in the U.S. using data from Chinese trials, but operationally, how fast does it enable you to go, knowing that you have a- efficacy and safety signals, in a Chinese population in expediting the move into phase three, i.e. is there an advantage here that you could enable you to catch up with the market leaders in those respective categories? And then second question, on Islatravir, perhaps you'd care to update us how your discussions of Gilead in terms of, and the FDA in terms of resuming trials, is this drug um, alive as a prophylactic, uh, in prep, as a treatment, both or neither? Thank you.
4: Uh, so this is Dean. Thank you very much for those questions. Tackle your first question related to our recently announced um, partnership with Keelan. Uh, I, I should just emphasize this. This was recently announced, but we've had a productive, a really productive partnership for the past two years. And, and most recently, they have announced progress in two programs. Uh, one that they've declared which relates to Trope 2 ADCs, and, and they're advancing it in China in relationship to breast cancer and non-small cell lung cancer. In relationship to what you've said in re, uh, of moving those, those, uh, those uh, molecules, for example, in the United States, I, I think the FDA, and we support this, the FDA has been very clear of the importance of doing those trials not in a Single geography, such as China, but to have global um, global studies that include the United States, and so uh, the the ability for the for our partners to get us a signal in 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 a human population is really important. It allows us to navigate how to think about it at a global level, and so we 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 are hopeful that that this partnership will. Uh, allow us to accelerate the benefits of the, this trope to ADC to as many patients as possible. Uh, to your second question in relationship to islotravir, as you've noted, islotravir is our NRTTI. It's extremely potent. It has a resident time in tissue and has, has a high barrier to resistance. And we had two phase three st- studies that have excellent results. Uh, nevertheless, we also have reduction in lymphocytes across a number of our programs, most of it asymptomatic, but in, in, in a combo trial with MK8507, there was clean, clinically meaningful reductions that still depended. We have spent the last six months understanding that. We understand it far better. We believe that there is a potential path forward uh, to, to maintain and, and to have that efficacy by re- and also reduce Uh, the the effects on the white blood cells. We are in active discussions with the FDA, so I don't want to get ahead of myself there. And we clearly have active discussions with our partners. In relationship to the question of treatment and, and PrEP, I just want to make sure that everyone recognizes we have always thought that this class of molecules, NRTTIs, and is just one compound within this class could be broadly used in treatment and in PrEP, and we are interested in applying both of those, uh, advancing both of those uh, possibilities. Uh, but we are in the midst of discussions with the FDA that I think uh, we should we should uh, provide them the data that they will need. Thank you, Andrew. Next question, please, Alan.
0: That will be Louise Chen with Cantor, go ahead.
4: Hi, thanks for taking my question here. So I wanted to ask you about the checkpoint inhibitor strategy. What are your thoughts on the changing treatment paradigm for checkpoint inhibitors in the new adjuvant and adjuvant cancer setting? How do you think about adoption and uptake in the setting? And do you think doctors are convinced of the opportunity
3: yet, or is there more work to be done? Thank you.
4: Well, let me answer it from a scientific standpoint. Maybe we'll have uh, uh, Caroline or Rob, answer it from a from a market standpoint. I do think it's really important to to, to just highlight, at least for me, you know, PD ones have been incredible in metastatic through a broad range of tumor types, and we keep going into earlier stages. And and it's not a priori that a medicine that works in the metastatic patient, who has a very different benefit risk ratio, will be truly effective in the, in the early stage, and, and it's been impressive. We have six approvals, whether it be in breast, in renal cell carcinoma, and melanoma. Um, and we have a positive trial in relationship to lung, and we have uh, 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 many others advancing. So I think that part of it is um, I think the uptake has been good, but the most important thing is that scientifically the data has been very good, um, and and I think the field will adopt it. Uh, I think one of the things that'll be critical as the field adopts it is that oftentimes you're now talking not necessarily about a medical oncologist, so there will be work for us to do. But I think the results speak for themselves, and you know I I I would recommend that that, that people look at that data, and I think that it's an important advancement in the field. But in terms of the uptake. Caroline,
3: did yes. you want to take care of that? Thank you, Dean. So, Louise, we are really excited about the opportunities that we have moving into earlier stage, stages of cancer. Clearly, if we can impact patients then, the possibilities of better outcomes are greater. We have seen in our early stage cancers impressive performance. We're seeing very strong performance in triple-negative breast cancer, renal cell carcinoma, and melanoma. And if I just touch on triple-negative breast cancer, we had the Keynote 522 approval here in the United States July of last year. During the uh, second part of last year, we saw tremendous uptake in the first segment of treatment, the neoadjuvant treatment, ahead of people then getting their surgery some 24 weeks later. What we're now seeing is not only patients coming on to Keytruda for neoadjuvant triple-negative breast cancer, we're also seeing them return to treatment following their surgery. So we're very optimistic about the opportunities we have in the adjuvant setting and the impact that we can have on patients.
1: Thanks, Louise. Next question,
0: please,
7: Alan.
0: We will go to Yuma Rafat with Evercore. Go ahead.
7: Hi, guys. Thanks for taking my question. Um, I have two here, if I may. Um, first, Rob, I know you've mentioned M&A is critical to further diversification of the business away from Keytruda, and you could explore M&A in basically in a non-oncology bucket like Acceleron or in oncology. And I guess that brings me to my first question, which is, in oncology, um, it's a very high-quality problem of Keytruda being this foundational treatment across so many different tumors, and how do you approach that given the Um, increased FTC focus on um, looking at a lot of deals based on market shares on individual markets, considering Keytruda basically has a market share in so many different tumors. And how how do you think about oncology deals in general, given Keytruda's role? And I'm sure you guys have thought about that at length uh, to the extent you're thinking about any capital deployment. Separately, Rob, also, you mentioned um, drug pricing and mandatory discounts. And I'm sure you've run exercises internally attempting to quantify how much in discounts and I, what I'm getting at is, for key franchises like Keytruda, considering the price of US and XUS is fairly comparable, wouldn't there be not much mandatory discount at all? I, I just want to make sure I'm not uh, off 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 track there. Despite Keytruda being a top Part B drug, thank you.
2: Yeah, no, I appreciate the, the questions. And on, on your first question around uh, uh, the M&A space and and what we see in the oncology field. No, I would just start by saying, obviously, we are very proud of the success we've had with Catruda and the fact that it's been able to impact so many people's lives, as you say, across uh, so many different tumor types. But I think it's important to understand that oncology continues to be an incredibly competitive field, um, and importantly, it's not monolithic. You You have to look tumor by tumor and even modalities, whether it's IO or targeted therapy. So there are multiple different approaches, multiple modalities, and, and it is a very tumor-specific. And, and as you know, we have to develop these drugs indication by indication, investing in the science to bring each of those forward. And, and in that regard, you know, as, as we look at it and as we've thought about it, we continue to believe that while the environment is more complex, and obviously we'll have to be very thoughtful in how we navigate it, I believe, we believe, as long as we're doing deals that are science-driven, where we accelerate innovation and we can show that we can expand access to patients around the world and in the United States to medicines, um, that there are still deals to be done and that there's a path to move forward. And so that's very much where we're focusing and, and why we continue to believe the opportunity exists to uh, to continue to expand treatments for patients and. Uh, and for the benefit of, frankly, all stakeholders, including shareholders. Um, on your second question, uh, and I think it depends on the way you, you look at it um, uh, as far as the upcoming regulation, you know, obviously if you look across what is being proposed, if, if you're speaking specifically to the, the potential for mandatory price discounting at some point, obviously the language has to be finalized, but if you look at where it is today, uh, the way it is being proposed is that for a period of time after a drug is in, approved, during its period of exclusivity, for right now it's roughly seven years to for negotiation for small molecules, 11 years for large molecules, you are able to operate with, with no discount. At that period of time, um, there would be a discussion, and opportunity for HSS to select the drug depending on um, uh, their determination of which drugs to, to look at. They Right now, as the language is discussed, will pick 10 drugs a year, uh, and it will up to the HSS to determine which drugs they pick. But importantly, then, the negotiation itself, once it is done and the discount is determined, and that discount is outlined in the, in the legislation, will take effect at year 9 for a small molecule, year 13 uh, for a large molecule. So as you think of something like Keytruda, we're really talking about periods of time that are out um, around the time of uh, loss of exclusivity in 2028. Um, And uh, obviously there's other language that's being proposed potentially to allow for an exception if there are biosimilar uh, products in development coming that then you would not be subject to it. So the reality of it is it's unclear uh, what the impact will be in the short term. We don't see impacts. uh, from that specific part of the regulation. It will be longer term um, as, as it relates to uh, our important drugs, Catruda and Gardasil, uh, and then obviously we have to see how the final language comes out. But in, those, in the language are then the specified discounts that will be set, so it's not, it's not a reference price in the way they're setting it up right now. And then obviously beyond that there's what they have around the, uh, the Part D reforms, which actually we support because we believe that will reduce the uh, out-of-pocket costs uh, for patients at the at the counter, but our, our, the reason we continue to oppose the overall legislation is a strong belief that that focus on a mandatory discount after a period of time is chilling to innovation. So I'm not sure I got your question, but I think that's what you were trying to get at. Thank you, Homer. Next question, please.
0: That will be from Jeff Meacham with Bank of America
1: morning, everyone. Uh, thanks for the question. I just had a couple quick ones. Uh, Dean, I wanted to ask you on, on Keynote 412, uh, the recent you know, data did that didn't hit significance, did, did CRT add complexity to the study in terms of your assumptions? And more broadly, if you look at other indications, you know, does a CRT backbone uh, present any particular challenges uh, when you look at other uh, other keynote studies? And then on, on covid the, the recent infection trends just over the course of this year or the emergence of any new variants, uh, does that change a strategy about the future investments you guys are going to make in, in LaGavrio or even other oils? Thank you.
4: All right. I, I'll take the, I'll take both of them. I'll take the keynote uh, 412. So you're speaking about the, you know, us trying to go into early stage head and neck, um, and you're speaking about uh, the 412, which you know, as you've emphasized, there was improvement in event-free survival for patients who received the Keytruda regimen compared to the placebo plus DRT. However, these results did not meet, you know, statistical significance based on our pre-specified statistical plan. So there's clearly a positive signal, uh, but it did cross the line. In relationship to to how to think about CRT or, or radiation and other indications in this. You know, I, I would not say that it gives you uh, extra complication. We'll have to see, you know, in these other trials when, when not just us, but other people in relationship to, to the combination there. But I would just emphasize that, that it was an improvement in EFS, so I wouldn't say that it was a complicating issue for us, we just didn't need statistical uh, uh, significance. I do wanna make sure that everyone recognizes that this isn't our only foray into head and neck, uh, early stage, you know, we have a Keynote 689 that's also in the neoadjuvant and adjuvant treatment as well, so we're cautiously optimistic that we can break in into early stage head and neck um, despite the fact that you Keynote 412 no, it had a positive EFS did not meet statistical significance. In relationship to, the, to the, um, the pandemic, I need to be a little bit careful because everyone who's predicted what will happen with the pandemic have, have all had one common thread. They've all been not so right. Um, and so we'll have to see what happens with the pandemic Um, We'll have to see what the emergence of resistance is, but I would emphasize the importance of having multiple mechanisms of action is clear. I would just emphasize that it is quite surprising to me how quickly this virus can mutate around those therapies, for example, focused on the spike protein. That's actually, you know, it takes many amino acid changes to do it, um, and it might take very few amino acid uh, changes to, to get resistance to, for example, other, other therapies, but we'll have to see what it is. But I just want to also emphasize that, especially outside the United States, there has been a great use of it and uptake, and it's really based on the fact that, you know, if you have a patient population where you believe that they're extremely vulnerable and you can give this drug and you're most interested in reducing mortality, which this drug has an impressive impact on mortality, and you want speed such that you can really see the patient and, and who may be on multiple medicines, have other complicating medical issues, and, and, and feel free that you can give this. If those are the important sort of attributes, then we have found that LeGavriel does quite well, and the real-world evidence throughout the world has begun to substantiate.
3: And, Jeff, this is Caroline. The only thing I would add in terms of further investment is our belief in the molecule monupiravir as being a molecule that could be impactful not only against COVID-19, but also pan-coronavirus, RSV, and flu. And as a result, we will invest in appropriate programs to try and prove that out. Thank you,
1: Jeff. Next question, please,
0: Alan. That will be from Mara Goldstein with Mizuho. Please go ahead.
3: um firstly, I just wanted to understand uh the statement about Kitruda supplemental uh uh PDUFA for in the adjuvant non-small cell lung cancer. And have you been asked for additional data or are you planning for a major amendment? And then secondarily, I just wanted to also get some clarity on, on the comment about excess cash uh, for share repurchase and at, at at what threshold should we be thinking about that if you're also committed to raising dividend?
4: Yeah, so I'll, this is Dean, I'll take the Keynote 91091. 091. So that's the lung adjuvant. And just mm-hmm. to remind everyone, that had dual primary endpoints, and the reason I want to emphasize that is a dual primary means that if you hit on one uh, of the endpoints, you have a positive trial, and this is a distinction from those trials that are co-primary where you have to hit on both. So this is a positive trial because in the disease-free survival, it's positive in all comers, regardless of PD-L1. Uh, The the dual primary of DFS in terms of uh, those with a TPS greater than 50, there is is a positive trend, but it's not significant, and the OS has got a favorable trend as we move forward. I would imagine as as data matures, people may want to see those data, and I just want to emphasize that in relationship to early stage uh, um, lung cancer, we have... Other trials as well, which is Keynote 671, Keynote 867, and KeyLink 012. So I could imagine that that as people deliberate on this, they will be interested in understanding how the data is maturing. These are event-driven, and they're part of our FDA discussions. And the PADUFA date, as you said, is January 29, 2023. But we could see a situation. There's nothing formally that's been asked of us but we could see a situation where where, uh, evolving data is, is asked for.
3: Amara, in response to your question on our utilization of excess cash, the capital allocation priorities of our company are unchanged. We continue to invest first and foremost in our business and the great opportunities that are in front of us. Business development is a strategic priority for us, and we will invest in business development as we have done in the past. We intend to continue to raise our dividend over time and we will then return any excess cash to our shareholders via a share buyback. We do not intend to sit with multiple uh, capacity on our balance sheet for periods of time and not use that cash in this regard. So I hope that uh, addresses the use of uh, our cash. Thank you, Mayor. Next
1: question, please, Alan.
0: That will be from Seamus Fernandez with Guggenheim. Go ahead, please.
5: Um, so uh, maybe just one m question. Can you just clarify uh, whether any acquisitions planned um, or, or that Merck would consider uh is likely to be all cash or if there would be a potential use of equity um that that would be or could be considered uh in a potential transaction and then you know separately just wanted to get a, a little bit of the vision um for B116 um and and where and how you see B116 competing in the overall market um, it, are, are we really just looking at that as a potential opportunity solely for adults, or do you envision the 21-valent actually being, um, you know, a high-use target opportunity in um, in the pediatric patient population as well? And then just trying to get a sense of timing of when we could see V116 actually competing in market, um, and, and how you see the overall market evolving over time. Thanks so much.
2: Yeah, thanks, Chairman, for the question. Um, you know, obviously, uh, business development remains a, a priority for us as we've discussed. And, importantly, you know, we look to add whatever we can find the best science and innovations that, that enhance our pipeline and, and drive long-term growth and value for shareholders. You know, I don't want to speculate on, on specific future transactions or the specific combination of cash or equity we would use, because it really would be fact-specific to the deal at hand. And and, uh, so in that sense, I think we'd have to weigh – the broader point I think that I want to enforce, and we've said consistently, is we have the the capital and the balance sheet strength to to go after anything that we feel is strategically important that brings that scientific innovation uh, that I mentioned. Uh, that will allow us to continue to uh, augment what we have in our own internal pipeline. So we have the, cap- the capacity and the flexibility to structure it how we see best to optimize the business. How you do that between cash, uh, uh, debt, and equity is really deal specific.
4: Yeah, in relationship to the questions that you had about V one one six, I just want to reiterate or reemphasize the strategy that we we think, which is in different age groups or different populations, the serotypes that are most troublesome for different populations is very different. So the whole focus of V116, the whole focus of the V116 is to recognize the serotypes that are specifically important for adults and to target that. And that's what V116 is, and that's why, you know, we have the first of four current Phase 3 trials that have to run its course. There is not a view from my standpoint scientifically that this is a this is a vaccine that I would drive into the pediatric population, because the epidemiology as of right now would suggest that that would not be the right place to put this vaccine. So we want to put the vaccines where the serotypes match what is happening to that patient population.
2: Yeah, and I might, I might just add uh, to that, you know, if you look at it as we think about in the future commercially, we see a real opportunity when you think about this bespoke approach where you have vaccine advance that we think will be highly effective in combating the the, the serotypes that cause disease in infants and children as our pediatric approach. And then you have a separate approach with V116 aimed at the adult market. You know, we will go after 85% of the residual disease understanding that if you've treated it in peds in children, you obviously have a different set of, of, of stereotypes um, that are driving it in adults, and we are focusing on both of those as bespoke therapies aimed to what is uh, most aligned with the needs in those populations. I think this will be highly effective uh, and will allow us to be very competitive, in fact, co- cover uh, more than what the competitor products cover uh, in the disease-causing serotypes um, than you see today, either in what they have in both the pediatric and adult market. So I think this is something we're very excited about. And, in fact, we see b B11, 116 as really um, bringing to fruition that strategy. So we're excited about it, and we're going to drive it with speed, because I do think this is going to be uh, an area where we can definitely be highly competitive and, and successful.
1: Thank you, Seamus. Maybe last question, please,
2: Alan. That will come from
0: Carter Gould with Barclays. Go ahead.
5: Uh, Squeezing us in. Um, Dean, just real quick, wanted to ask you, uh, come back to the subcutaneous formulation of of FEMBRO. Um, Is that phase three in non-small cells still on track to read out early next year, and how should we think about sort of the clinical measures in that study, not just sort of the, I think the primary endpoints are around some of the, the biomarker endpoints, and should that study alone sort of be warranting a filing or should we th- be thinking about it differently? Thank you.
4: Yeah. So I just want to emphasize that, that that trial is, is on track and that trial should, our, our intention is it should support filings. I should also emphasize that we have more than just one sex program program um, and different uh, 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 images and, and different subcutaneous, because we think that there may be a, a different patient population that will be important for different sort of formulations, the, the uh, root uh, formulations. I should also emphasize that just like we have Q3 weeks and Q3 weeks, Q3 weeks and Q6 weeks for intravenous, I think it's also important that we open up that possibility in the subcutaneous range as well.
1: Great. Thank you very much, Carter.
2: Rob, any closing comments? Yeah, well, I'd just like to thank everyone for joining us today, and maybe I'll just conclude by reiterating um, my appreciation for the tremendous efforts of the Merck team and and really continuing to perform exceedingly well in a tough environment to advance our science and ensure our important medicines and vaccines uh, reach the patients around the world that are counting on us. So I appreciate that, and I can tell you I remain very confident in the underlying momentum And I look forward to continuing to give you updates on our our progress as we move forward. With that, uh, have a great day.